So wait, what are you doing? Are you doing a cinnamon roll? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and did you bring enough for the whole class? <laughs> yeah, just come on down. We've got more. <laughs> you win. <laughs> we got plenty. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vickery. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, how's your week going? It's going really well. Uh, it's been an intense week. Uh, just a lot has been happening between work and then also some fun stuff happening. Uh, so we had goats come and stay with us for a couple of days, which was delightful. I've never shared space with goats before. And so is that just like, like in the spare bedroom or... Yes, uh, come, you know, crash in on the bed, make sure they're really comfortable, that kind of setup. Take really good care of our goats. <laughs> As you should. No, so it's, uh, we ended up renting two goats from someone that lives nearby. Apparently, that's like a, a pretty common thing to do is to rent goats because then they'll come in. Uh, you can hire them to hire them. <laughs> Sounds funny. But yes, you can hire the goats and then they will come and clean up your yard. Uh, they're really great at eating like a lot of the weeds if you have a lot of ivy. So cities will hire like herds of goats to either clean up like sides of highways or to clean up like certain grounds. I think solar panel farms will use them as well because they have a lot of like expensive equipment, but they want to keep the lawn like manicured. So they'll hire goats to just roam around and keep the space clean. So we thought it would be fun to go into that adventure as well. So we rented two goats. Uh, they came and stayed with us for a couple of days. We don't have a fence yet, though. So that was the complicated part. So they were both tethered to their individual leashes and then tethered to the ground, like a stake in the ground, so they couldn't go too far, but they could still roam probably like a good 30 feet away. But yeah, it was, it was very distracting. I really just wanted to sit out there and hang out with the goats all day. I set up a, a live stream for the goats at one point because I wanted other people to enjoy as well. And they're kind of like dogs, like they're social. They like to be near you. Uh, they like to hang out. It was a lot of fun. That is a fun experience. I don't know if there are goats up here near the Boston area and <laughs> I don't have enough lawn to warrant goats, but still a fun idea. <laughs> Did you end up with like big 30 foot diameter circles, uh, each spot that you put them down? <laughs> so you're, it's a very patchy, but goat worked over areas in your lawn. We had trouble at first because I've discovered that goats prefer anything that's off the ground higher up initially. So we have a bunch of ivy that's growing around our trees and then the ivy constricts those trees and can cause them to die and then fall over. So that was one of the reasons we were bringing in the goats to clean up all the ivy. And we learned that they would reach up high to anything that's leafy first. And then any of the ivy on the ground was sort of like, okay, like I guess if there's nothing else to eat, then I'll eat the ivy that's on the ground. I also think I distracted them a lot because I was out there so much with them. So they did eat some ivy, but maybe not a ton, which is probably partially my fault too. Because my family came over at some point and also wanted to see the goats and hang out with them as well. The goats also love treats like they love Cheetos and graham crackers. So I may have ruined their appetite and where they prefer Cheetos over Ivy, which makes sense. So no weird patches were formed. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly prefer Cheetos to Ivy. So if I, I had an endless supply of Cheetos, I probably would eat no Ivy. Fair statement. But how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's been an interesting week. I'm continuing on with some of the web apps felt stuff that I've been doing. Um, this felt part has been great. 
the more I work with it, the more I like it. Uh, I've even poked around with TypeScript now, so that's cool. Uh, the TypeScript integration works very well, not perfectly, unfortunately. There was a thing where I, I had a TypeScript compiler plugin, so it's like adding functionality to the TypeScript compiler, and it didn't work within the context of Svelte. I don't quite understand why I would have expected it to. I'm hoping I can figure that out down the road, but the like core TypeScript stuff actually just works really well in Svelte, and otherwise, I, I, it's just it's very enjoyable, particularly within the context of inertia and the way that I'm doing everything else. It seems like a a really great way to add just a little bit of extra functionality to a page. I feel like I'm increasingly moving towards a hot take of either want to do Svelte or Elm, but I really want to like push to the edges as opposed to hang out in the middle ground where React is, which I really like React, but there's a bunch of ceremony and stuff that like when I go to Svelte, it just, I don't know, it feels much more straightforward. And I feel like a team could pick up Svelte really quickly. Whereas if I really want the complicated stuff, then I'm going to go to Elm because I want all of the, the niceties of the compiler there and, and those sort of things. But um, I'm wondering if, if React's falling into a, a weird middle ground for me. I was just thinking that sounds like a pretty big endorsement or a statement from you in the sense that I know how much you and I enjoy working with Elm. And then to say that you'd rather either push it all the way that you're using Elm because you have that type safety or to use felt in place. Uh, that's really intriguing to me to hear you say that. Yeah, that's uh, I'm frankly I'm somewhat surprised as well. And I, I would say that the cases where I would reach for Elm are also vanishingly small, where like it needs to be a very complicated, highly interactive like a graphical drag and drop editor or something like that. That kind of thing maybe I would reach for Elm, but most of the time I think Svelte is is a great option and I'm I want to keep pushing on it and I want to find like is there a use case where it breaks down or do I find I don't think it's going to be teaching other people because Svelte is just, for me, it's just been way more intuitive than React. Like I had to like map my ideas into React and Svelte is kind of like, oh, it just does the thing you want. You don't really have to like know much about it. There's one or two gotchas. And once I learn those, I'm like, all right, I'm good. I got it now. So we'll see if that continues to be true. I'm, I'm kind of giving my experience report as we go. So in future weeks, I will, I will tell you if that continues to uh, be the direction that my thinking is going. Yeah, it's kind of fun hearing like your incremental like progress and how you're still feeling about using a, a new tech stack. I'm really curious, we may have talked about this a little bit last time, but in terms of where you're talking about uh, choosing Svelte upfront, and then if you need to get to that point where then you need to use React or use something like Elm instead, you just gave a really great example for using Elm. What kind of work or what kind of application would then encourage you to choose React over Svelte? Honestly, the more time I spend with Svelte, the more I see it as a pretty direct alternative or replacement for React in, in my work and in, in the majority of the work that I'm doing. The sort of things that might push me in that direction are there's a ton of libraries. There's a whole ecosystem of UI frameworks and integrations and tooling and ready-made components in the React world that I can use. And so if I'm building something that's like that, uh, or that might benefit really strongly from that. Or if we have a team that is already skilled up on React or like we're using React Native for the front end, there's a bunch of reasons that might sort of like push me towards React. But from a fundamental, what are we doing? I'm not seeing the case where I'm like, ah, you know what, this is complex enough that I want to move to React. Svelte is, it just sort of takes a different approach, but I feel like it does a very similar thing to React. And frankly, some of the like use effect stuff in the hooks world has I've, I've personally really struggled to do it and now as i go to svelte i'm like oh I, this just kind of makes sense and it does the stuff that i want and it has the niceties of like animated transitions and those things just built into the framework as first class concerns that is really intriguing to me so i'm not sure i'm, I'm guessing there are reasons beyond what i said earlier of the like component libraries or strong team affinity for react but personally i think i'm going to keep reaching for svelte for a while 
Is there anything in the Svelte ecosystem that's similar to Redux? Because I'm, I'm also just trying to think of like reasons that then people may be pushed into the React space. So yeah, is there, is there anything that helps handle similar state and Svelte? Like people use Redux to handle state in React? Svelte does have a concept of stores. So uh, in the same way that Redux has, I think they're called stores in Redux as well. Svelte actually has that built into the framework. And so they're... I think you can subscribe and you can emit values and do stuff like that, the Redux style development. And it's, again, built into the framework, so it's not even a separate library that you're bringing in. It's just another piece of, I think, the core ecosystem. It's not part of necessarily the Svelte package itself. I've not had to reach for that just yet. Uh, Most of the stuff you can get by with just kind of plain old assignment. And I've seen that pattern also in um, React apps as well, where folks are reaching for Redux less and less. And they're able to replace it with either use state or use reducer. So the built-in hooks in React and Redux is when things get really complicated. But again, for me, that would be the point where I might start considering Elm instead. So if I really need to like this big machinery to manipulate complex global state, probably going to look to Elm at that point. So I think Svelte actually does have an answer, but at the same time, I've not been pushed towards it. Granted, the stuff I've been doing so far is relatively straightforward. There's some forms with a a couple of animations and interactions, but not the more complex interactive UI. I feel comfortable that I could scale up to that, but I've yet to have things that really push me in that direction. That's helpful. I was just kind of curious what all is available in Svelte land that would... I was trying to think of reasons to push into React and knowing that Svelte already has like built-in stores as a concept is really useful. It's surprising given sort of where Svelte exists in the ecosystem, how complete of a framework it is. And that does seem to be one of the the core philosophies. The creator, Rich Harris, he talks about like, if we're going to do it, we should have all the stuff that you need to build a real app included. And so that includes things like animations and transitions, because those really are table stakes at this point. And similarly, the more complex store patterns and things like that are also built in. So an interesting point of view, at least, especially in contrast to React, where it's like, we're a view framework that you know obviously has grown over time. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. But that's enough, uh, enough of me rambling about Svelte. Again, I'll, I'll continue to update as we go on. But um, what else have you been up to this week? It's already highlighted goats. Uh, that seems like one of the most important parts. Uh, yep. But the other... <laughs> the other thing that's been going on is so we had our first cohort uh, for the RSpec class that Amanda Biner and I are teaching. And so that has been all my focus this past week. And it has been a lot of fun. It has also been really stressful just because building a lot of this content. I've done this before where I've built content for a class and I recognized from the beginning in the amount of time that we had for the number of hours of content that we wanted to create it, it felt a little bit like a push. And it turns out that that does seem to be true. Content creation just takes a long time, especially when you're performing it in front of an audience. But we've we've done a great job in where we have figured out some exercises and topics that we want to cover with the students. 
So this week was really awesome where we actually got to deliver some of that content to about eight individuals. And also the person that is organizing this class for their engineering team was participating as well, which is wonderful just to have their leadership there and also to have someone to give us feedback since they're heavily invested in knowing how people feel about the content. We had one interesting moment that I feel like is worth calling out because I feel like this is something that people may run into with in their line of work or also if you're consulting encounter this type of situation. So we realized that we felt some high stress around this first cohort, but the first cohort was also supposed to be for Amanda and I to gain feedback around the content that we are creating. So we wanted to run it by folks and say, was this helpful? What do you think about it? But the first cohort also included some very important people that we need to impress. Some people that were less certain, like having an RSpec course was going to be really helpful to all the developers. So it felt like these competing expectations where we wanted this safe space to get feedback, but also we had to bring our A game and make sure it was impressive content. So we had a really great, honest conversation with the person who is organizing this class and training and saying that we feel this pressure and uh, as a way to mitigate it, could we actually have a true just sort of like beta feedback cohort where there's no one that we really need to impress, but it's people that we can get real feedback from because to build impressive content, we first need feedback so then we can make it really great. And that was a huge help to the class because it took off some of the pressures that not only Amanda and I were feeling, but also the person at the company was feeling as well. So that was this first cohort. We've been sending out an anonymous survey at the end of each session. I haven't looked at it just yet. I've been waiting until all three days have gone by. I'm surprised in myself that I've chosen that route, but this is just where I'm at. So I'm excited to look at some of the feedback. Overall, though, it seems like it's been well-received. And uh, one of the days I live-coded for three hours, and I've realized how exhausting that is. But it was also a lot of fun, because I think that's what keeps people the most engaged, is when you're working together through a problem. It is also hard, like for anyone else who teaches, I'm sure you'll be able to relate to this as well, but people don't often want to talk to you. So when you have questions and you're going through content, people don't always want to ask questions or provide answers. So at one point, there were a couple of people in the class that spoke more consistently, which I'm always appreciative of when there's people that feel more comfortable because they can help the rest of the group feel comfortable. But I started playing the who wants to be a millionaire roles in the sense that I'm going to call on people, but you also have the option to ask the audience if you don't know the answer. And we're in a safe space where it's totally fine to not know the answer. Uh, but that seemed to work well because it it gave other people the chance to speak up if perhaps they weren't speaking up before and also helped me as a teacher where then I wouldn't ask a question and then just sit there in silence for a couple minutes and hope somebody would speak up. So yeah, that's a, that's kind of my high summary of the class. I can only imagine the amount that that's like exacerbated by being on the other side of a, a video call. Like at least being physically in a room, you can kind of like scan people and see more body language and things like that. And you can also sort of keep track of it as you're going. But video is just it's a harder medium. And so I like that, though, of the like calling on people, but saying, but don't want to put you too much on the spot because everybody knows that's not fun. So I like that that middle ground that you found there. Yeah, Amanda and I talked about that. And I felt nervous putting people on the spot because I don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable, but it seemed to go well. And mm. from the little bit of feedback that I have heard, that seemed comfortable, like people didn't seem to mind. And a couple people used the, I'd like to ask the audience. Like they just immediately were like, yep, I'm not sure. So let's ask other people. And I thought that was really great. 
I think there's also definitely something that you can do as the host, and I'm sure that you did, knowing you, of like when you ask for a question, if someone says something back, the way that you respond to that, if you need to like, oh, not quite, but you're close, here's this thing, or no, you're bad, you did a bad thing with a bad answer, like obviously don't do that, but it's very easy to like with tone change and provide a more welcoming situation in which people are like happy to talk up and it becomes a little more conversational as opposed to just a presentation where you're sort of like lecturing people and yeah. So the, the live coding, that was you at your terminal editor, Vim, I assume, and showing people how you run tests and all of those fun things. Pretty much. It was an exercise where we were looking at all the different ways that you could test third-party APIs. So I had set up just sort of like a basic Rails app that was configured to work with RSpec. Initially, we thought about pushing up like a basic Rails app, then other folks could clone down and run. But we had just enough difficulties and with people in the class that we were worried we were going to eat up too much time with everyone trying to get it working on their machine. I've also, just from personal experience, know that when you're going through a workshop and you're trying to focus on the instructor, but then also trying to update the code that you're running locally, that can be very hectic and trying to keep up with both. And then as soon as you fall behind, you feel like you have to hurry to uh, rush and keep up. So then you kind of lose what the person is speaking about. So we decided instead to take the mob programming approach where I had the code on my machine, everybody could see it, and we were going to work through all these examples together. So the exercise that we were walking through, we took this basic Rails app, we were going to issue a request to the Meetup API, just because Meetup API is really nice, because you don't have to have authentication to pull down events for a particular group. So we could sort of sidestep one additional complication, and we could focus more on like, okay, we can grab data right away. And then we walked through the different strategies for testing a third party. So we started out where what Sandy Metz calls shameless green. So we initially just started out with making API requests and we wrote tests and we wrote out our feature. And then we realized, okay, well, let's talk about why we don't actually want to make real network calls in our tests. So then we stubbed out our HTTP request using WebMock. And then I think VCR is going to be in a future iteration because that's a pain point that folks had mentioned where they do use VCR at their company. And it is one of those tools that can be really wonderful, but it's also really easy to feel a lot of pain from because then you can't easily rerun your test and you start to lose the value of that tool. And then we moved on to stubbing methods on an adapter, uh, issuing real requests to a fake adapter. And then we touched on issuing real network requests to a fake service, but we didn't actually implement that one. But just going through those three strategies and also implementing our feature was uh, about three hours. I'm having a bit of a a flashback now because the work that I was doing today is uh, trying to integrate third-party auth uh, using Facebook and Apple. They're so bad. I don't know. Why Why does everyone have to come up with their own auth? I thought we had OAuth, but I can't use that now for reasons. And I've just been having one of those days where it's back and forth. And then the last thing on my list is like, should I be testing this? But I have weird complications of client-side auth, which then pass a token back to the back end, which then hits the services via the REST API. And I have chosen not to test the third-party auth, which is maybe a bad choice, but here we are. <laughs> I do have a question for you regarding testing and third-party APIs. When you're writing a feature spec, how do you feel about stubbing out that request in your feature spec using something like WebMock? I definitely have hesitations. I have the like heuristic voice in my head of, this is a feature spec. We're doing the real thing. All the stuff should be as real as possible. But then you get to the boundary of the system. So I feel better about stubbing something that's outside the boundary of like my app. I think I personally have become increasingly less dogmatic as time has gone on. And I ask the question of like, what value can I get from this test and what's the cost? And so do that concentrate off of like, how hard will it be to maintain? Are we going to go out of sync with the real thing? I think I described in a previous episode that 
I was integrating with the Stripe API and I just chose in the feature spec to let the feature spec actually hit the Stripe testing sandbox uh, because a, it was easy, which is probably the main reason I did it, if we're being honest. But I also really did want to know full round trip. Let's make sure I'm not misaligning any interactions there. Definitely this thing works. And I kind of I liked that choice and it was a trade off. It means my test can't run on an airplane, although airplanes have Internet now. So I don't know where to go if tests can't run if I'm in the woods in Maine. But that's OK, because it turns out that is a vanishingly small part of my life. Um, I would like to go to Maine again sometime soon, but that's the incentive for going to Maine so the test can't run. <laughs> <laughs> to force myself to reckon with the bad choices I made in my test suite. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, cool. Yeah, I was curious because I also have mixed feelings about it. On one hand, I also have that voice in the back of my head that's telling me like we're in a feature spec. And from a user perspective, they wouldn't be able to see that we're making this request. So it feels kind of odd to put that at the feature spec level. But then as we were going through each stage and we started using a fake adapter, so we have like our meetup API client, and then let's say we're using our fake meetup API client, and then we're setting it up in our Rails helper. So anytime the tests start up, then we're actually shifting over. We're telling our application to issue everything over to the fake version instead of the real version. And it felt really cool because then under the hood, anytime we're running tests, we're now using this fake version and we don't have to stub out as many of our requests. But on the other hand, our feature spec was then just very mysterious because we were essentially going to a page and saying, I expect to see like this content, this title, but there's no context as to where that information is coming from. And so I actually preferred our first round of where we had the web request or stubbing out with WebMock, the network request, because then at least I could see what was happening and why that test was asserting against that data. We did refactor to a point where then our fake did take in some data. So it, it diverged from the original like meetup API client interface where that one doesn't take any data, but then the fake version, we could pass it events. So then that way in our test setup, you could see, okay, I have this fake version of an event. I'm going to pass it to my fake meetup API client. So then when I assert and expect the page to have some content, at least I understand like how this magic is happening. But there was that like really uncomfortable middle stage where it was just like I visit a page and see some stuff and have no context as to where that's coming from. So I'm also someone where I'm I'd rather have the context than stick to the ideal like this is a feature spec and it should only be from the user perspective. I as a developer am selfishly prioritizing the fact that I want to know what the heck is happening. <laughs> I mean, that's reasonable. You are one of the audiences of those tests. So I think that totally makes sense. One bit of feedback that I did receive towards one of the ends of the class, because after the class was ending, then myself and Amanda and then the person organizing this class, we were hanging on for a couple of minutes afterwards to chat. And something that they'd mentioned that made me laugh is at one point, someone asked a question. And my response was, I don't know, but let's go figure it out. And so I opened up iTerm and we started playing around with some tests to answer their question. And so they said, they're like, when you did that, I was like, uh oh, and like, I, I wonder where this is going to go or if this is going to go well. But then I guess they really liked the fact that I was just very honest and said, I don't know. And then let's go figure this out together. And they really appreciated that because they thought that was just huge to be able to say in front of an audience, like, I don't know, because then that makes other people also feel very comfortable in saying that they don't know. But it just felt like such a, a funny, like, compliment sandwich of the, I thought this was going to fail, but it turned out okay, <laughs> kind of moment. 
I got real scared when you did that, but then you turned it around and it was great. <laughs> that is interesting, though, that like modeling that behavior and especially doing it confidently. I'm like, oh, I don't know. And I don't know actually what the tone was like when you said it, but I don't know with a tone of and that's fine. Let's go find out. I really like that framing of like, yeah, no, we can figure stuff out. That's part of what our job is. Just you know, go figure stuff out often. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. So we all know how VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? So what's the best way to make sure that 100% of your data is encrypted so that no one can get a hold of your data? You guessed it, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel between all your devices and the internet so that everything you do online is encrypted. It reroutes your connection through a secure server, which blocks others from seeing everything that you do online. All they can see is that you're connected to an ExpressVPN server, but nothing beyond that. And it's not just for your phone or computer. ExpressVPN works on all your devices. It works on your tablets, smart TVs, and even your router, so your entire family stays protected. Plus, ExpressVPN is simple to use. Just open up the app, tap one button to connect, and that's it. Your data is your business, so protect it at expressvpn.com forward slash bike shed. Visit expressvpn.com forward slash bike shed to get three extra months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com forward slash bike shed to learn more. And thank you again to ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of the Bike Shed. So changing gears just a little bit, because I'm sure I'll have some more updates in the future as we run the content through a couple more cohorts and um, may have some interesting tidbits from that experience. But pivoting just a bit, we have a listener question today. So this question comes from Ryan Hunter, and it's about how to organize perspectives and roles and rails. So Ryan wrote in, Dear Steph and Chris, thank you and ThoughtBot so much for the podcast. I have been listening since 2017, and I look forward to each week knowing that I'll learn something, whether directly from your topic content or by osmosis from hearing you discuss challenges in your own work. Ah, that's wonderful. Thanks, Ryan. I have a question I'd love to hear your thoughts on. So how do you cleanly handle when there are several distinct user types for an application who need to access roughly the same features, but from different perspectives? For instance, I have a web app I'm working on that has an inventory list. For admin users, it shows a typical admin data table with search, pagination, and links and buttons to your basic cred app operations. For customer users, it is a similar data table with search and pagination, but it displays different columns, has different buttons, and it scopes the search results to only those that belong to that customer. Thanks in advance. And again, I love the show. All right. Uh, Chris, do you want to kick us off with how to organize perspectives and roles in a Rails app? Sure. Happy to start us off. Um, I'm not sure that I actually have any great answers here, but to start, the first thing I want to say is thank you, Ryan, for uh, sending in the question. We always appreciate getting them. And if anyone wants to send in other questions, hosts at bikeshed.fm via email is the best way to do so. And uh, we will happily provide whatever information we happen to have. In this case, this is one of those interesting ones where I'm not sure that I have a great answer or uh, I guess a different way to put it is I feel like this is one of those like fundamental things. This is the hard part of programming, taking information coming in in a form and putting it into a database and showing it again. Like, I don't know, we probably figured that out, but how to cleanly map domain logic into our application is really difficult and especially when you have multiple facets. So I've worked on a bunch of apps that are two-sided marketplaces that then also have at least a third facet because of the admin point of view. And there are a few things that stand out that I've seen not work out well. Um, so one is encoding information in the API or in the data access layer. So having different points of access for like, if I'm an admin, say a GraphQL API, having the root query that you're coming in through is admin, foo, bar, whatever, and then you're traversing through, but the root of your query is actually encoding that you are an admin versus, you know, I'm this side of the marketplace or that side of the marketplace. Those I've seen and they 
they seem very complicated and I don't think the query should encode the user. I think that should be a side piece of information. Authentication defines who the user is. And then particularly in like Rails apps, CanCan or Pundit or one of those frameworks that allow you to encode that information at a different level. But I prefer to not put it into the actual query or like API layer. That's that's one thing that I have seen that's a little bit problematic. Beyond that, I think reaching for a framework like CanCan or Pundit or something that helps you organize this in sort of a structured way, I have seen that work out well. But at the end of the day, I think this is particularly difficult. The one other thing that comes to mind is I have been on sort of a personal uh, journey to try and figure out the simplest way to build user interfaces possible. And part of that is continually pushing information back into the back end so that that, the smarts and the logic don't live in any given UI because then each UI is more costly to build. I want to make it really easy to spin up the admin view of the world, which is different from this user perspective, which is different from this user perspective. And with that, GraphQL is a tool that I found really effective because it makes it very easy to get the data you need for any given view. And so it's that much easier to build, say, the admin point of view versus having everyone see the same thing, but conditionally hiding and showing buttons. I find that to not work as well. I I tend to like to split at sort of the entire UI level. But that breaks down when you have users that sort of like share roles when it's not as cleanly divided as, you know, admin versus not. When you have users that maybe have different abilities or different like, I'm a super admin, I'm a very super admin, then you get back into the world of sort of augmentation. But I'll pause there and see what are your thoughts? Anything that I said there sound ridiculous to you? Uh, No, certainly none of it Uh, sounds ridiculous. I appreciate that you touched on the fact that this is not something that really has like a simple, easy answer where it depends on your complexity, whether you're dealing with just like an admin and a user and you have two roles and then it feels more appropriate where you can have more if statements because you just have the two to deal with. Or if you're dealing with an application where you do have maybe like 10 or 20 different roles. So maybe if you're working in like insurance or finance space and then you really need to lock down like who has access to read data, create data. That just resonates with me because of a previous company that I worked with where we did use a tool that was similar to Pundit where we needed to give everyone like specific access rights to each page. And then once they're on that page, even like the specific data they could see and actions that they could take. So the spaces I've worked in outside of that one company where we did have more complicated roles and we used a tool like Pundit, in other terms, most of my experience circles around where it's just like a user and an admin, and that one feels pretty easy to split at like the route level. And so then you're no longer checking their role because like you had hinted at earlier, it becomes more of an authentication at that point. Like you know which controller and where to send them to and then how to build the data and you don't have to check their role at that point. But I have to be honest, it's been a while since I've had to handle an application that has a bunch of different user roles in it. So I don't have like a a great answer for this one. I would have to research a little bit more or work with an application that has this requirement. I similarly haven't spent a lot of time in this area recently, but even looking back throughout the time that I've worked on things, I've never landed on a solution that I was like, oh, this is obviously it. This is how we do it moving forward. I now know how to do this. feels somewhat similar to like uh, single table inheritance versus polymorphic associations. I dislike both of them a bunch, and I really want a different solution that I'm just like, oh, I'm happy with this. But for that sort of trade-off, I always have to judge it in the moment and go with that. But sometimes that's you know the reality. Uh, I will say there is one pattern that I've seen that I really like, and unsurprisingly, it brings me back to GraphQL, but here we are. GitHub's API actually emphasizes this really strongly, where there's permissions queries essentially sprinkled throughout the API. So for any record that you're interacting with, you can get an associated piece of data or field on that record that is like, viewer can edit, viewer can modify, viewer can delete. 
And so it's talking about you are now authenticated as a given person. Does that person have the permissions to do that? The way that cleans things up and pulls logic back to the back end is something that I really like because the alternative that I've seen is when the page loads up, the first thing we need to do, and again, this sort of assumes an API-based situation, but more and more with iOS apps and Android apps, I'm finding that to be sort of the way that we build things and you want to have a common infrastructure for those sort of things. So given that we have an API, one way to do it is to send down the profile information, like here's the user and here are their roles. And so now we know the roles for that user and each UI needs to now know how to do that calculation for like, okay, if, if we're looking at a post, if the user is a super admin or an admin, or they own the post, then they can edit. And that sequence of logic, that conditional chain is repeated across all of the different UIs. And if ever we change that logic, we want to add a different thing, then we need to re-implement it across all of them. Versus if we're able to pull that back and just expose the logical property of viewer can edit, then that allows us to have the very clean, very uh, sort of constrained if statement on the front end, and again, build out distinct UIs or branching UIs as necessary, but without needing each UI to own that logic. So that is one pattern that I've really enjoyed. And that can easily be backed by something like Pundit in the the actual server implementation. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because now that you're highlighting that as an example, that is something that we were doing with the previous team that I was working with. That Often in the APIs, we left it up to the API to determine if someone had access. Since we had an Ember and a Rails application, the Ember app still needed to know details around, yes, whether that user can edit. So we were often sending down a Boolean instead, just so it was a very easy, like fast check on the front end. So that's that's a really good point. I'm glad you mentioned that one. Yeah. And just to say the thing that we always need to say when we say stuff like this, we also need to implement actual security and anything that might change the data and make sure even if we gave the Boolean that said, no, you can't edit it, we also need to make sure if they still try to edit it, that it is not possible. So actual security is always important. So I want to ask, since you alluded to it earlier, since you're not a fan of like single table inheritance and polymorphic relationships, I'm really curious to hear a little bit of uh, why you're not a fan of those. Uh, sure. Honestly, it, this again is one of those things that I need to like reimmerse myself in it each time I need to make the decision. But my rough understanding is when you have single table inheritance, then say you have three different types of users, you can have the user table, which now has a type column, which says, oh, this is an admin type user versus a user type user versus a guest type user. And those are three different you know, types, but then you might have different properties. So this table grows to be the superset of all of the properties that you need. But now you can't actually use features of the database like null constraints on columns because an admin that field must be present for but a user it doesn't need to and so because the single table is representing all of the full superset of them we can't actually express as cleanly the constraints that we would want in our app and it, it just becomes kind of messy but then if you flip it around and you have the polymorphic association then you have three different tables and wherever you need to have an association to that, if it can be any one of the three, then you need to have both the type and the ID. So two different columns to track that. And further, you can't have foreign key constraints at that point, which are one of my other favorite database features. So then you end up back in application land trying to make sure data integrity is maintained. So it's really, I think fundamentally, they each have data integrity limitations that make me sad. And I don't want to give up on that. I'm not sure why Postgres at this point doesn't have the ability to do polymorphic foreign key constraints. It feels like a, a pretty common pattern. And it feels like a thing that Postgres could know about. The combination of these two, you know, instead of just being a string reference to another table or another model, it could be a table level reference in Postgres 
I don't know about the internals of Postgres. I've never <laughs> looked into it really, but that feels like a thing that could happen. Or the other side of things, I would love to see on the single table inheritance side, what if we actually could have proper sum types? So like we do in Elm where we can say like it's a user with a name or it's an admin with a name and a role. If we could actually properly differentiate that in the database, that's the thing that I would absolutely love because I often end up in this space and you end up with this breakdown. But I feel like if my data layer could just solve it for me, then it would be fine. And I've yet to see the answer with the exception... There is a project that I saw at one point. I want to say it's EdgeDB, maybe. I will look it up and I will include it in the show notes, the actual answer. Um, But I had a small back and forth with the creator of it. And it's a layer built on top of Postgres that brings additional typing information and things like that. I'm not sure how it works, but it it seems to purportedly do the thing that I want. So that is a a technology that I want to work with more. I don't believe the like Rails or Ruby integration is particularly strong at this point. I think it's more Python and some JavaScript adapters that exist. So I wouldn't want to be the first one to try it out on that, but I'm very interested in following that space. Yeah, I figured you'd had some really good thoughts around like SDI and polymorphic and all of the reasons that you provided really resonate with me as to how they all lose some of their data integrity for either approach that you use. But I I loved having you dive into that because uh, when we have these conversations or when one of us alludes to something, we're like, oh, well, we don't really like this or we have problems with it, but then we don't actually dive into it. I often think back to myself of like a couple of years ago, if I'm listening to someone that's on a, a podcast or maybe just having a conversation and they allude to not liking something, but then they don't go into why. I'm always curious. I'm like, oh, why do, why do these people that I enjoy listening to not like this thing? Like, should I not like this thing? So I think it's fun when we add some context into the reasons why something is maybe not our favorite or is our favorite. Yeah, no, always happy to share whatever opinions I happen to have. And yeah, I think providing the extra context is always useful too. So yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, I feel like this circles back to my earlier comment talking about testing about how important context is. Thank you to Ryan for sending in your question. Uh, We always love answering people's questions. And on that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at svacary on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Totes, my goats. Your goats left. Your goats are gone. <laughs> I know, and I'm sad. <laughs> Totes, my goats. Uh... This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.